What's up, church family? How you doing? Good, good. Good to be with you today. Uh, last week, if you missed it, we rolled out what we are just calling our vision lanes. And what we mean by that is uh, we just want to get in on what we feel God is already doing uh, in our city and around the world. And we just want to let you know about it. And we want to be as intentional as we can. And uh, one of those vision lanes that we want to highlight between now and the end of the year is just God's heart for vulnerable children. Uh, kids that are in the foster care system who have experienced tra trauma in some area of their life, maybe they feel forgotten and they wonder if they're loved. And we wanna come alongside them as a church family and say absolutely you are seen and you are known and you are loved by a heavenly father and by us as well. We just believe that's at the very heart of the gospel message. And one of our strategic partnerships is who you just saw in the video. That's Back-to-Back uh, -back Ministries. They do some incredible work in a couple of different countries around the world. And because of your generosity last year, we were able to help them build a special needs resource center in Matlan, Mexico. It's what you saw there, that facility that's going to minister to hundreds, if not thousands of children and their families for years to come. And so, uh, yeah, you can go ahead and give it up for that. And uh, what we just want to do is we just want to continue to keep in front of you uh, through stories and through, um, you know, articles about just what it is that we're doing in the world and how collectively we can make a difference and move the needle on that. So uh, I just want to welcome everybody across all of our campuses, uh, anybody tuning in online. We are in this series of messages with a really funny name uh, called Modnik, and it's just kingdom spelled backwards. And on week number one, we said that a kingdom was anyone's sphere of influence or control. And so under that definition, we all have one, whether it's a big kingdom or a little kingdom. Maybe your kingdom is your car. You know, you've got all the presettings catered just to you. Maybe your kingdom is your kitchen or your backyard or your basement. Your kingdom is where you control the thermostat and the remote. Can I get a good amen? All right. It's like... It's like, this is my kingdom. What I say goes here because nobody else in here. It's just me, you know. And, and, and God's got a kingdom too. It's like the whole universe. And uh, it's his fear of influence and control. But, but God's kingdom, the way it operates is backwards and upside down from what we might think or assume. It's Jesus' favorite subject to talk about. He brought it up all the time in conversation and in messages that he would teach. If we're counting in the four Gospels, Jesus brought it up 126 times. And the things he said about it just seem a little bit backwards and flipped upside down. And maybe perhaps the most backwards thing and the most central thing that he said about the kingdom of God can be found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus said this. He said, for the son of man, that's just another name for Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's just an astounding statement. Jesus is saying, uh, I, I'm the king of this kingdom. I'm the leader. I'm the boss. I'm the head honcho, so to speak. And I, I came not, not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. My, my youngest daughter, Cadence, she's like our little extrovert in the family. She loves being around people. She's the life of the party. She's, she's hysterical. And uh, a couple years ago when she was in preschool, she had a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day. So my wife comes, gets her out of class, takes her to the doctor's appointment. On the way back, 
she gives her this like lecture. She says, honey, like when you go back into the classroom, uh, the teacher is going to be teaching. Please don't disrupt the class. Like walk in, be very quiet and respectful. Take off your coat, your backpack, go to your seat and, and just be, be, you know, be respectful. And my daughter, uh, she uh, indicated to my wife that she understood. <laughs> but she did not. And she had no intentions of doing this plan. And so she gets into the classroom, as my wife tells it. She walks in, and as soon as she walks in, she drops her backpack on the ground, unzips her coat, takes it off, and she goes, I'm here now. <laughs> Just all heads turn, spiral around, looking at her. My wife's standing behind her. My wife wanted to run and hide underneath a rock. And she's just like, I'm the, I'm the center of attention here. I'm the spotlight. She's just drinking it in. She, she was on the front row first hour between services. She came up to me because I, I told all my kids, anytime I use them in an illustration, I give them five bucks. She goes, Daddy, $10. <laughs> I was like, $10? She's like, yeah, one for each service. And uh, like, you drive a hard bargain. Um, and yet Jesus says here in this passage, he, he goes, listen, like when, when I come into the world, when he wrapped himself in human flesh 2,000 years ago, it wasn't uh, a big production. There wasn't the lights and the haze. Jesus didn't rip open the sky and go, I'm here now. Like he didn't do any of that. He came in a very understated way. He was born in a barn in Bethlehem to disoriented parents who didn't, they weren't quite sure what they were going to do. Jesus said, my whole purpose for coming was not to be served, but to serve you and to give my life for you. Here's maybe another way of saying that is that you and I will never inherit the kingdom of God unless we let Jesus serve us. Unless we let him serve you. Now, now what does that mean? Well, that means you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven on your own merits, on your own good works, on your own good intentions. And that's good news because we can never get there anyway. Jesus said, man, just let me serve you. And it's really, really good news, but it's so backwards from what we oftentimes think. And so in this series, Modnik, we've basically just been taking it a letter at a time each week. And the letter stands for a different word to help us remember the values of this backwards kingdom. And so on week one, we talked about M, more is less. And then week two was O, others first. And then D, descend into greatness. And last week was G, generosity flows. And today is N, just stands for not to us. And, and here's what we mean by this. I think that every single one of us, regardless of who you are and what you do and your, whatever, your gener whatever generation you're in, all of us, it feels really, really good to be recognized and appreciated for not only who we are, but what we do. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to receive some recognition, to hear a, a thank you every now and then, or man, you're doing an incredible job, or we just couldn't do this without you. And it feels good, and there's nothing wrong with it unless we begin to like it a little too much. Unless we begin to want it a little bit too much, or we need it a little bit too much. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves finding our sense of worth, value, and identity in the things that we do and the gifts and the abilities that we have. And when we begin to find our identity in a temporary role that we're serving in, whether that's a parent or, uh, you know, a boss or a career of some kind or you're serving in some kind, whatever it is, it's a temporary role. And we find our identity in that rather than identity first, a child of God, then we'll begin to do whatever it takes to guard that thing. And we'll hold on to it so tight 
And Jesus says in God's modernic kingdom, we don't serve to be seen. We don't accomplish to be applauded. We don't step up in order to be singled out as someone adored or praised. And I'll tell you from firsthand experience, it is an easy trap to fall into finding my sense of worth in what I do and the temporary role that I have and the gifts and the abilities that I bring. How many of you are like Cliff Notes version people? You're like, I don't got any time to read books. Give me the Cliff Notes version. Any of those hands? Like you're ashamed to admit it here, but you're my people. You're my people. Like my, when my wife reads a book, she relishes every page, right? She's like got her cup of coffee. She's got her highlighter. She's taking notes. She'll shed a few tears after every page. You know, she's just drinking it in. Me, though, like I'm, I'm listening to audiobooks and podcasts on time and a half speed. <laughs> to get through all the content as fast as I can, right? That just reveals the darknesses of my heart, right? So, so some of you are like Cliff Notes version people and actually Jesus, like he speaks to you because he, one time he said this, he goes, you wanna know the Cliff Notes version of the Bible? It's this right here, this statement, love God and love people. He goes, man, everything hangs on that statement right there. In other words, the purpose of our life is to glorify God. It's to lift God up in everything that we do and lift other people up in the process of doing it. But oftentimes, instead of loving God, what I end up doing is I try to leverage God. I try to leverage God to get what I want or to get me out of the things that are uncomfortable. And I end up maybe uh, pulling or pushing other people down because my pride says I need to lift myself up and I need to actually stay up. But Jesus says that might be how the rest of the world operates, but not so with you. David one time writes this in Psalm 115. He says, not to us, O Lord. Like not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Now, I don't know if you maybe have a good working definition for the word glory, but really simply put, glory is just recognition or admiration. And David says, Lord, to, to your, not, not to us. We, we don't want to receive the primary recognition and admiration. It, it all goes to you primarily because, God, we know that you're the only one that's worthy of it and you're the only one that can handle it. And so here's the question that maybe I just want you to think of to yourself today. Is it what are you really good at right now? Like what do you excel in in life? What comes easily to you? And maybe some of you here today, like you're just a really gifted athlete You've just always excelled in sports, whether it's the field or the court. And maybe, maybe you even got an opportunity to serve professionally or at a collegiate level. It's just come easy, easily to you. So some of you, maybe you're just a really gifted mom or you're a gifted dad. Like you're just really, really good at that. And you've actually found identity in that temporary role. Maybe you're just really gifted in the classroom. Like academically, like your GPA is through the roof. You ruin the curve for everyone else. Thank you very much. Right? You're just, you're just amazing in the classroom and you've got... You're just going to go far academically. Maybe you're an entrepreneur. You've come up with a really great idea and you've built a business around it and you employ other people and you've actually experienced some success. Maybe you're just a really gifted communicator. Like anytime you stand up to speak, people just lean in and they listen. Maybe you're gifted in the arts. You're just a talented musician or you're a vocalist. Nothing wrong with any of that. But here's where we got to be careful. Wherever you receive recognition or admiration, it's going to become a temptation to make that a part of your identity. And whatever your thing is, you'll be tempted to make the thing the thing. And when that happens, you'll do almost anything to guard and protect 
your glory, the recognition and admiration that you think you deserve. Why? Because it informs your identity. And so without uh, the, the field or the court, I don't know what I'd do with my life. Without the classroom, I'm not sure what I would do. Without my, the kids in my life at a certain age, I'm not sure who I am anymore. Without the career, without the platform, without the accolades, I'd be lost. And so what we end up doing is we hold on to it so tightly and we push God out and we end up using other people and we eventually lose our influence. And David says, God, to you, you receive all the glory. We want to continue to look to you because you're the only one that's worthy of it and can, that can handle it. Now, where did David learn that? Where did David get that wisdom? And if you know anything at all about his up and down story, I would say that David knew firsthand how misplaced glory can go sideways in your life real quick. David was not only the cause of some misplaced glory in his life. Oh, we could talk about that. But David was also the recipient of misplaced glory. If you know anything at all about his story, it begins back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David just comes out of nowhere, man. He's just complete obscurity. He's a nobody. And almost overnight, he skyrockets to all kinds of fame, recognition, and glory. The setting is that the Israelite army are in a standoff with their arch nemesis, the Philistines. And the Philistines had an MVP. It's their version of LeBron James, this guy named Goliath. And Goliath is just a beast, man. Like nobody can take him and Goliath knows it. He comes out every single day and taunts them and he says, send out your biggest and your baddest and your best. I don't care who it is. Just bring them out. We'll go one-on-one, -on -one, winner take all. And it was crickets from the Israelites. They had no answer to this taunting. And there was a couple of boys that were in the Israelite army uh, they had a father named Jesse, and they had a younger brother named David, and Jesse was a worried dad. And so he brings David in from watching the, he was a shepherd during the day. He brings him in. He says, David, I need you to go give a care package to your brothers. Uh, here's some cheese and some bread. Uh, go and just check in on them and tell me how they're doing. And David, uh, please follow these strict orders. If you sense any danger, like if the battle starts to ensue while you're there, drop the cheese and bread and run. Get back here, David. Don't get caught up in the battle. You're the last of the boys. I, can't, I couldn't lose you too. So David didn't pay attention to any of that. David takes the care package. He marches in full of, you know, fully confident onto the battlefield. Look, check this out. Verse 26. I love this. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? We've all met that guy, haven't we? It's the young, inexperienced intern who thinks they know how to do your job already, even though they don't have any experience. It's the person who's like full of themselves. Like they, they, they're so confident that it's actually crossed the line into arrogance. Verse 31 says, Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. So you got to understand, this guy named Saul is the leader. He's... This is his like lowercase kingdom. This is his sphere of control and his element of domain. He's, he's in charge. What you need to know about Saul is that just a few chapters back, uh, it, the, Israel had no king. They, they were God's people. All the other nations around them had a king. 
And so they decided they really wanted one. And so they go to the prophet Samuel and they go, we really want a king. And he's like, well, why do you want a king? And they go, well, all of our other friends have a king. And Samuel's like, well, if all your other friends jumped off a bridge, would you? And they're like, yes, yes, we would. So God gives in and he gave the Israelites a king and his name was Saul. And Saul comes out of relative obscurity as well. I mean, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest tribe in, in Israel. His family were just a bunch of nobodies. But immediately, almost overnight, Saul just skyrockets to all kinds of fame and recognition and glory. He's just a success. And it says twice in chapters 9 and 10 that he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was gifted. But now, by chapter 17, in this standoff with Goliath, people are starting to talk around the water cooler. Saul's, Saul's slipping. He, he, he's not as good as what he used to be. I don't think he's got what it takes anymore. They were questioning his leadership and his ability to lead them out of this, and he knew it. And so the weight of responsibility had dropped squarely on Saul's shoulders, and he's like, I feel like I'm blowing it here, and everything is on the line as Goliath calls him out. And then he hears about this young guy named David who's actually showing no fear, and so he sends for him. And you probably know the story, or at least parts of it. He's going to send him out on the battlefield to take on Goliath. Now, when I heard this story growing up, I never, ever read it through the lens of King Saul. I'm always reading it through the lens of David. But I started to read it through the lens of, of King Saul, and I thought to myself, why in the world would Saul send a little shepherd boy out onto the field to take on the UFC champ? one-on-one. -on -one. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And I think it just shows the kind of stress and pressure that he was under. Like, at this point, he has no options. And there's been an, they've been in a standoff for over a month. And he's like, I got to do something. And when you're under that kind of pressure, any neck is better than yours. And so he sends David out. David goes out super confident. You probably know the story. He's got a slingshot, some smooth stones. He drops Goliath like a bad habit. And then Israel just rushes the field and they take their enemy. And then it says, whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. And we'll find out he did it a little too successfully. And so Saul made him commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. I love this. Saul does what any good leader would do. He's like, I hired him. Right? He's like, you guys, weren't, you guys didn't believe in him. I saw the potential in the kid long ago. I always knew he'd take him out. Right? And he hires him and he gives him position and rank and influence. And then David does really, really well. A little bit of time goes by. And check this out. Chapter 18, verse 5. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. I'm not going to sing it. I'll read it. <laughs> Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Ouch. Can you imagine what that would have felt like if you're Saul? Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe you're like, oh, I know exactly what that feels like. It feels like daggers right to your ego. And you're like, man, I, I feel overlooked. I feel underappreciated. I feel disregarded. I feel taken for granted. 
Like, it doesn't matter how long I've served in this company. It doesn't matter how long I've sacrificed for this family. It kind of feels like somebody else has come along, and now they're threatening the recognition and the admiration that I, I think I deserve. Someone else comes along, and they're more talented, and they're more connected, and they've got better ideas, and they're better looking, and they just seem to have it all together, and they're making you look bad. And it's in this moment that Saul has got a decision to make. It's, this is going to really show what kind of a leader he is truly, he truly is. And is this going to be about his title and his lower K kingdom, or is it going to be about something else? And Saul's got a decision to make. And really what he should have done in this moment, it, that's easy for me to say looking back on it, I get that. But what he should have done is he should have immediately gone to David and he goes, David, from now on, you ride with me. We are the one-two punch. We are the Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. We are the Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? We, D David, together, we are the, the 11,000 club, David. Just think about that in a minute. It'll catch on. I realize the delivery wasn't as on point as what it could have been. But, but here's what Saul does. It says, this made Saul very angry. Why? Well, because his identity was wrapped up in his role. His sense of worth was found in his ability. And now that somebody else has come along to take it, who is he? So angry. He goes, what is this? In fact, I think the Hebrew is like, what's up with that? I think that's what how it reads. He said, they credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands? That's an exaggeration. I've got the books to show it. I've got way more than just thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that, maybe the saddest statement in this whole section. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And it just spiraled his leadership out of control. Saul did not have any room in his chariot for a David. He didn't have any room for a young eagle in his organization. He could not stand that somebody on his team was more talented than him. He could celebrate David's achievements just as long as it continued to make him look good. But as soon as David's achievements began to overshadow his own, no way. And I realize that maybe you're not the boss at work. Maybe you're not the CEO. Maybe you, you don't see yourself as the one in charge or you don't see yourself even necessarily as a leader. I might challenge that because I think a leader is just anybody that influences people, which means you are one. But it doesn't matter who you are today. All of us are going to find ourselves in Saul's position at some point in our life. Or we're going to say, well, well, I have the position, or I've been here the longest, or I've got the most experience, or, or Pastor Aaron, we've been members of this church for over 25 years, which in code means our voices should be louder than everyone else's. I've been around here a long, long time, and so therefore, it should be a little bit more about me and my preferences. See, Saul, like, where did, how did Saul get here? Like, how did Saul make this about him, right? I mean, this is, these are God's people, Saul serving in the temporary role of a king. How did he make it about him? And in the same way that you and I have a tendency to make it about us. And we say, well, it's my business or it's my team. It's my staff. It's my church. These are my kids. After all, I started this. I'm the entrepreneur. I've been here the longest. I sacrificed for this. I think there's a couple of important questions that all of us need to ask. Maybe you should ask this of yourself today. I know I'm asking it of me. 
It's just simply this, like, what are my aspirations? Maybe you did this a long time ago. Maybe it's a time to review it. Like, and I would, I would encourage you to do this, like create categories in your life. So what are your aspirations, your goals, dreams, and desires as it relates to your family or to your marriage or to your career or to your spiritual growth, whatever it is, what are your goals, dreams, and aspirations? Super healthy thing to do. But here's the next question we oftentimes overlook. What are my motivations? And that's key. What's motivating me to chase after that goal? What's motivating me to want to accomplish this? Is it because I want to glorify God and love people well? Man, that's great. Is it because I want to expand God's kingdom here on earth? Fantastic. But maybe for some of us, it's because we're trying to earn someone's approval. Or we're trying to prove our sense of worth. Or we're trying to find our value from this thing that we contribute. Here's the thing. At some point in your life... I pray that you experience some success, you accomplish the thing, you, you arrive, so to speak. And when you do, you got to be really careful because you'll be in a very precarious position. Because after you achieve the thing that you think that you set out to do, you're going to have to ask the question, well, what am I going to do with this now? What am I going to do with this position? What am I going to do with this influence? What am I going to do with this title? What am I going to do with this glory? Am I going to hold on to it with a death grip? Or am I going to give it away? Am I going to follow after the example and the teaching of, of Jesus where he said, I've come not to be served, but to serve others. So about five years ago, I went out west and, and I spent two and a half days doing what's called the life plan. And some of you might be familiar with that. Others of you, maybe not. But basically, you just sit in a room for two and a half days with a facilitator, and they just kind of map out your life. And, uh, you know, he just talks about your childhood, the way you grew up, your family of origin, and just your calling in life, all that. And you kind of put into chapters your past, and then you kind of paint a picture of the present, all with the aim of being super intentional about the future. And it's a really, really helpful thing to, to go through. It's also really uh, scary. And it was a scary thing. About halfway through day two, I kind of saw my whole life kind of up on this board. And the picture that he had painted of the present sort of took me aback in the sense that um, I got kind of this like glimpse of like my family and so, so blessed by our kids and the opportunities God's given us and, and just the influence that our church has had and, and just the effect that it's making around the world. And I kind of stopped and, and I told the facilitator, I said, this really scares me. And he goes, why does this scare you? And I, because, I go, because if you and I could climb into a time machine and go back in time and meet up with 21-year-old Aaron Brockett and show him this wall, 21-year-old Aaron Brockett would go, man, that's amazing. Do, do I get to be all a part of that by the age of 67? Like right before I retire? No, by the age of 38. And I said, that scares me because I don't want to be Saul. That scares me because I don't want to make this about me. Like, where do you go from here? Like, what do you do? Like, I see so many, like, uh, very little percentage of leaders in the Bible finish well. And obviously, you just look all over the news. A lot of leaders don't finish well. And I go, man, I just really want to finish well. And he goes, well, are you saying that you, God's allowed you to scale your Mount Everest, so to speak, and now you don't know where to go? And I go, well, I wouldn't have put it that way, but since you used the analogy, yeah, I guess so. Here's what came out of the two and a half days of the life plan. He goes, how about this? How about you spend the rest of your days just throwing down lines to other men and women, other leaders, and help them scale their Everest? Like, how about, how about, how about you just make that your focus? 
And I appreciate the applause, and I want to be very careful here that I don't make myself the hero of this illustration, because let me tell you, it ain't been easy. And there's probably been a lot of days where my attitude could have been better. And it's meant that I've had to give up some preaching opportunities that I really wanted to have and some leadership decisions that I really wanted to make, all for the purpose of saying, no, you make the decision. No, you preach. No, let's see what you can do. Hey, you want to be sent out and go plant a church or go start a church? Yeah, man, we'll send you out. And there are days when I just go, man, Ryan Bramlett is so good, and he's so powerful, and he's, his voice is like butter. He would just stand up here and read up the newspaper, and I would rededicate my life to Christ. I really would. <laughs> Now, you contextualize that for you. What's that look like for you? See, here's the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, am I making anything too much about me? And let me, let me just give you a little clue on this. You are not objective enough to answer that question for you. You, you and I have blind spots. You've got to find some people that you know, love, and trust who will lovingly tell you the truth, even if the truth hurts a little bit. Because all of us are going to be tempted to make this too much about us. We're just human. We're sinners. We are all susceptible to it. And the minute that it seems as if someone else is getting the glory that I really, really kind of secretly want, the attention that I crave or desire, the, money, the moment that somebody else I kind of feel is gunning for my job, they appear like they got it all together. You know, your daughter-in-law, she just isn't paying attention to you as much as you think that, you, that she should. You know, she, she didn't even ask my opinion, right? I mean, the minute that I make this about me, is the minute that I begin to lose influence in other people's lives that I could have had. So instead of loving God and loving people, no, no, I leverage God and I use people. And God goes, I won't play that game. And honestly, other people won't either. Saul just couldn't get it and his life and his leadership unraveled and it ends in an incredibly tragic way. About 800 years Prior to this, there, there was another leader that needed to learn this lesson. His story actually ends on a much higher note. His name was Joseph. His, his friends called him Joey. The story's found in Genesis 37. Joseph, as a young man, is just incredibly gifted. And the thing is, is that he knew it. Like he had this incredibly fancy coat of many colors that was a symbol of his title and his position. But he enjoyed the glory too much. He had this gift of being able to interpret dreams. And so one day in a rather arrogant way, he comes in you know, to where his brothers are seated around the breakfast nook. And he goes, hey, guys, I had a dream last night. And uh, I think that it means that one day I'm going to be greater than you and you'll all serve me. How do you think about that? How, what do you think about that? And God's like, bro, you need humility. And so his brothers, they throw him into a well. <laughs> And they sell him as a slave into Egypt, and he ends up locked up in an Egyptian prison cell. In fact, eventually, like, his boss's wife would make sexual advances towards him. He's trying to do the right thing. She accuses him of sexual harassment, gets him thrown in jail longer. And you got to think. He's like, man, I've been stripped of my glory. Like, this is, this is my life. But one day when he thinks he's been forgotten, because his dad thinks he's dead, the Egyptian pharaoh starts to have some troubling dreams. And some of his team comes in and they go, hey, well, there's this kid in your prison that actually is really good at interpreting dreams. You ought to talk to him. And so Joseph walks in, has no agenda, no aspirations for glory. He's just completely humbled. And he walks in and Pharaoh tells him the dream. Joseph interprets it, goes back to his prison cell it helps Pharaoh so much that Pharaoh promotes him to the highest rank in Egypt 
the rank just underneath the Pharaoh. And here's what Joseph does with his newfound influence and glory. He uses it for others. That Egypt has this famine and Joseph employs his leadership skills and he benefits everybody else around him, even the very brothers who sold him out years ago. And what do we learn from this? Like, why would God take Joseph through this like sideways path? It's because long ago, Joseph had a great coat, but he had no character. And it take, God takes him through what you and I would go, man, that's tragic. God's abandoned you, bro. You should become an atheist. And what ended up happening is that it developed some character within him. Because now in this point in his life, he lost the coat, but he found his character. And sometimes when you lose the title and the influence and the position that you think you're entitled to, what God's trying to do within you and me is he's trying to form a character within us. See, the, the lesson we get from the life of Joseph is that God wants to do some things in you before he'll ever do things through you. And there have been, so, like, can I just tell you this? Like, at the midway point of my life, as I look back, I'm so thankful that God has not answered every prayer the way I've prayed them. Because if he had, I'd have no character. Because you want to know why? The two things that I primarily pray for is, God, would you please get me out of this? And God, would you please give me this? And there are so many times God's like, no, I'm not going to get you out of that. And I'm not going to give you that. Well, why? Because Aaron, I'm trying to develop some character in you so that you can handle the temporary role that I've actually blessed you with. If God had answered every prayer the way I'd pray it, I would have no character. The thing that I want you to know right now is that the Bible is full of story after story after story of men and women who just had a hard time learning this because they're just human. And can I just say that that should actually comfort you and me? I mean, even Jesus' like 12 handpicked leaders, the disciples, they just couldn't get this. I mean, they thought the whole time during Jesus' earthly ministry, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, they thought that Jesus was going to run for political office and that they would have seats at the table and that they would be in the positions of power. That's what they thought. So they kept saying, Jesus, when are we going to do this? When's it going to go down? And Jesus is like, no, 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 guys, you don't understand. Like, I've come to, not to be served, but to serve. Yeah, yeah that sounds awesome, Jesus. That's a great tagline, all right? But when are we going to do this? And he's like, guys, you don't understand. Like, I'm going to march into Jerusalem, and I'm going to lay my life down. And Jesus, you can't go into Jerusalem. They hate you there. And he goes, yeah, I know. Like, I'm going to be arrested unfairly, tried unfairly, mocked, beaten, criticized, nailed to a tree. But make no mistake, boys. Nobody's taking my life. I'm laying it down. But don't worry. Three days later, I'll pull off Easter. And it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and they just couldn't get it. And Mark actually kind of spends a significant amount of time kind of talking about all this. Like one time Jesus is traveling with the disciples and he kind of hears the conversation in the back of the bus, but he can't fully understand what they're talking about. So he just asks them in verse 33, he goes, hey, what were you guys discussing on the road? I love this. But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. They didn't want to say, but the Bible tells on them. And there it is. When will this be about me? When will I get mine? When will I get the attention and the adoration and the affection that I deserve? And so Jesus says, guys, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. See, true greatness is about serving others. James and John, they just didn't get it. 
Because in the very next chapter, even after Jesus had said all that, they pulled Jesus aside and they go, hey, JC, could we have a word with you for just a minute? Keep this on the down low. We don't want the other fellows to know because I just don't think they could handle it. But we were just wondering, um, could we have the seats of greatest honor, like seats one and two? Like we're brothers, so we don't really care which one. It could be one and two. It could be two and one. doesn't really matter. We just like the seats of greatest honor. Our mom's in on it. Like she's totally cool with us asking you this. And then Jesus launches into this statement right here. It says, when the other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. I bet they were. You want to know why? Because they didn't ask. Like James and John asked first. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, in the Modnik kingdom, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of others. And then it brings us to this statement that we started with. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So can I just ask you today, what does this look like for you right now? Is there any area of your life where you're holding on too tightly to a temporary role or an ability or in a position that you just, you, you just don't know who you'd be without it? It's become part of your identity. And to have it taken away, you'd be lost. So here's what I want to do. I just want to give you like uh, two statements of application and then three questions and then I'll be done. Here's the first statement. is simply this. Insecure people always make it about them. They always make it about them. They say, this is how I feel. This is what I deserve. This is how I've been wrong. This is what I've been missing out on. This is what you should do for me. Anyone know that person? Yeah, they'll probably be over for Thanksgiving, so buckle up. And if you don't know that person, might be you. All right, so... We love you. Here's the next statement. Secure people, though. They stay calm, they stay connected, and they stay the course. Now, what do I mean by that? They, they stay calm. Well, I'm not going to react to this right away. I'm going to be gracious, even though I feel like maybe I've been treated unfairly. I'm going to stay connected. I refuse to isolate, shut down, or be passive-aggressive. I'm going to continue to cheer other people on, even if they're better than me. I'm going to stay the course. I'm not going to let this derail my week. I'm going to keep leaning in so that God might work in me and through me. And I'm going to continue to love God and love people. And it is not going to be easy. It's going to confront your pride and your ego. But you got to ask, what kind of a leader, what kind of a mom or dad, what kind of a person am I going to be? Am I going to be like Saul, who just had no room in his chariot for David? Or am I going to willingly serve others? Listen, Jesus said, I want you to be good. No, let's scratch that. I want you to be better. No, there's, no, no. I want you to be great. And the way to greatness is not to take the things that you're good at and make it all about you. It's to leverage it so that other people are blessed and God is glorified. Now, I know some of you right now are going, Pastor Aaron, are you telling me I need to give up my title and my power and my position and my influence? No, of course not. Jesus is, all right? <laughs> Take it up with him. The world clamors for all that stuff. Can I just tell you, like 2020 is going to be a tough year. Because it's going to be one of the nastiest, most divisive elections that our country's probably ever experienced. We're going to need to remember this. 
We're gonna need to remember that we don't power up, that, that we serve. We're gonna need to be remembered to be gracious even when maybe something pushes our buttons. The world clamors for power and position and title and I'm right and you're wrong. And Jesus goes, no, 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 not so with you. Not so with you. You live with a different set of kingdom values. And some of you may say, well, what, what will we get if we do this? Well, here's what we get. We get a healthier you. We get a healthier marriage. We, we get a healthier family. We, we get a, a healthier work environment. We get a healthier church. We get a healthier community. That's what we get. So three questions. Here they are. Is there anything in your life right now you're making it too much about you? Number two, can you celebrate even when others have what you want? And are you building God's kingdom or your platform? Jesus said, I've not come to be served, but to serve. Let's take our cues from our leader and king. Father, we come to you right now and we pray that this message could just not only be received by our heads, but sink into our hearts and then manifest itself through our thoughts and our actions and our words. This is tough. We will all struggle with this. We will never master it. But God, I pray that you would help us to grow in it. And so Lord, today I pray that if there's anybody here that just needs to be comforted today because they're hurting, that you would comfort them. If there's anybody here today that just needs to be humbled today, that you would humble them. But that the application of this message would be tailor-made to each and every individual, that they would hear and receive what it is that they uniquely needed to hear and receive by your spirit through this teaching. Because we need to be healthy, not, not for us, but because we want to glorify you. And we want to love people well, right into your backwards, upside down, eternal kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.